0: When I was in seminary, uh, one of my professors would give a quiz every class period, and so you'd walk in, and if you wouldn't hand out a quiz, It would just be get out a blank sheet of paper, put your name in your mailbox on the top, and they'll return it to you, and then he would say number one, and he would read out the question. Uh, once and then he would repeat it once, and he'd give you between twenty seconds and sixty seconds to answer, it depending on how long you know it could be a one word answer, it could be a phrase or a sentence you'd get to twenty seconds sixty seconds to answer it, and then he would say number two and then he would go on and it was kind of like his classes were known for having these really difficult tests in them, and because so you just walk in you don't get to read it, you just get that one chance, and it just is over and done in the first you know five ten minutes of class and It'd be nice to say that my days of tests ended after I graduated seminary, but life is full of tests. And when you get your driver's license, you take a written test and a road test. When you want to renew it, you cannot then take another test. And we go to the doctor to get eye tests and blood tests and urine tests and so forth. And you have to take tests to er uh, enter certain professions. Lawyers have to take the bar exam. Doctors have to take the MCAT. Semi-truck drivers have to... Uh, get their CDL license and take a test to get that. And you may have taken a drug test when you're getting hired somewhere, and you might uh, take a personality test to find out more about yourself. Um, but tests are uh, continue even after we get out of school. And so I just wanted to uh, take a moment and think, you know tests are a part of life, but we tend to dread them. And so what is it about tests that we don't like? And we're just going to write it up on the board. What is it about tests that we don't like? Unexpected. You might not know what's on it. Okay. What else? I heard two at the same time. Time. How much time it takes, or maybe the the unexpected is make time out of it. Was it you, Joe? What'd you say? Failing. Yeah. Afraid to fail. Fear of failure. Yeah. Can create a lot of anxiety and stress. Like, am I gonna pass this? the reasons do we not like tests? Why do we dread them? Or what are some emotions associated with that? You say ignorance? ignorance. Oh, show their ignorance, okay. So it might show our ignorance. This is a lot easier when we're all like, you know, close up. I can hear you guys better. (laughs) Yeah, and without masks show our ignorance yeah like man i didn't know half of that stuff okay any other feelings associated with tests or other reasons we dread them uh, it's like it's our pride so
1: it's humbling so okay
0: it's our pride it's humbling it's like we might feel good about ourselves but then it's like i took that test and it's pretty terrible anything else Well, second question is while we usually don't like tests, uh, what good can come out of a test? What are some good things that tests can do for us?
1: You're giving us a test right That's right. <laughs> How are you feeling right now? More
0: opportunities. Okay, more opportunities in terms of like, I might certify you for a job or something like that. Okay. Okay, that's prove what you've learned. sermon series in the Gospel according to Luke, um, as Jesus is doing his mission he came to seek and to save, that's how he he states it, seeking to save what was lost. Um, But he needs to be shown um, that he's qualified for this. And the first chapters of Luke uh, have been setting the stage for Jesus' public ministry. We had Jesus' birth, and the foretelling, like, oh, Jesus can be born, John can be born, and then they had their birth, and then John was born, and John was born too. And we saw Jesus' understanding of his identity and mission in relation to the Father, and then John preparing the way. And our passage today is the last story of uh, setting the stage uh, before Jesus launches public ministry. And in this passage, Jesus undergoes a test. It's an important test that shows he's he's fit for the mission uh, that God has given him. We've already seen in Luke uh, that Jesus uh, is has is called God's salvation. He's a sunrise, the sunrise rising on those sitting in darkness and the shadow of death. He's a light for revelation to Gentiles and for glory people of Israel. And the angels at his birth said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So, And then we know later on, Jesus does die for our sins, and then he's resurrected from the dead. But his death could not pay for our sins unless he himself lived a sinless life. If Jesus was a sinner like us, then he couldn't be a substitute in our place of the penalty that we deserve, because then he too would deserve that penalty. If Jesus has sinned, He deserved the same penalty as us. And so his death would be uh, just him getting what he deserves for his own sins. He couldn't stand in our place as our substitute uh, to die for our sins. And so then he would be just like every other human. Uh, And he also couldn't be the representative and the leader of a new humanity. And so Jesus undergoes a test to show that he's fit to do what he was born to do, to be the king of the kingdom of God and the savior who dies on behalf of of his people. And our big idea for today is this, and this is kind of how it's going to apply to our life. So it's think like Jesus, not like the devil. That's our big idea for today. Think like Jesus, not like the devil. Another way you could say it would be uh, think like a child of God, uh, not like a child of the devil. You know, people's children resemble what they're like and they get brought up in values and priorities in that household. And So it's okay, are we going to think like the child of God, uh, like values and priorities of his household, or are we going to think like the child of the devil, the values and priorities that he has? And we'll see two main categories. You know, The question is, how does Jesus think? We'll see two main categories. It's what Jesus thinks about himself and then what Jesus thinks about God. And then we'll see also how the devil thinks as Jesus undergoes this test, this passage has three parts to it that give proof uh, that Jesus is fit to do what God has sent him to do. And so, when Katie read the uh, um, the last part of this passage, we're actually backing up to Luke chapter 3, verse 21, and I didn't want to put Katie to read that genealogy that comes right after it. Um, so, the first proof is the heavenly proof in chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. The Heavenly Proof, chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. In the first part of chapter 3, we saw how John the Baptist was preparing the way for Jesus' coming by proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He was calling people, okay, turn from your false sources of confidence before God, turn from your selfishness, turn from your sin, and turn to God for forgiveness and in obedience. And in getting baptized, people were showing their alignment with God's will and God's purposes, and this is also why Jesus gets baptized. He uh, isn't needing to turn from idolatry or sin or selfishness but he's showing his alignment with God's purposes and he's going to be the one who leads all these people who will align themselves with God's purposes, who want to be part of his kingdom and then something significant happens in the baptism, so let's read uh, chapter 3 verses 21 and 22 it says, now when all the people were baptized when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. So after being baptized and while praying, uh, the heavens were opened and two events happened. One, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And number two, God speaks from heaven. And this is a revelation event that is showing uh, the confirming and endorsing Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the king that you've been waiting for. So there's two things. There's the visible spirit and the verbal testimony. And what's their significance? First, the the visible spirit descends like a dove, not as a dove, so it's not like a dove comes down, just kind of, you know how a dove would fly and float. It comes down like a dove on Jesus. And in the Old Testament, kings were anointed with oil, which was showing, okay, you've been set apart for this purpose, and God is with you in this. And then Jesus isn't anointed with oil, but he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And Acts 10, 37 through 38, that's what Peter, Apostle Peter, calls Jesus' baptism. He says, this was Jesus' anointing. And so he has the Spirit come on in a visible way, endorsing and confirming him as the one to come, the one that John was talking about. In the Apostle Paul's writings, he describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of adoption or the spirit of sonship. The Spirit is the way God seals his children to show, you belong to me, you are mine. It's like a seal of love. And so it makes sense that Jesus would have the Spirit come on him as the Father saying, you are my beloved son. And then the Spirit comes on him I'm showing, uh, this is the, this is one, he's mine, like I'm setting, he's set apart, he's my own. Of course he's not adopted in the same way we are, Jesus is eternally the son of God, so it wasn't like at this moment he was adopted and the spirit came on him, but uh, the spirit is described as how God pours his love into our hearts in Romans chapter 5. and So it's through the giving of the spirit that God uh, declares and affirms his love for his children And God declares his love for Jesus and his pleasure in him as the Spirit rests on Jesus. And as one book puts it, it says, The Spirit is the one through whom the Father loves, blesses, and empowers his Son. And this leads us to the second event. So the first is the visible Spirit. The second is the verbal testimony. God declares, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And this declaration is a combination of two passages. And the first is from Psalm 2.7. And there, the Lord is speaking to the king in the line of David. David was the greatest king in Israel. It's like, we want all the other, he was the, the royal line. God's speaking to the king in the line of David and he says, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. And God calls the king of Israel his son because, uh, like a son, he's supposed to reflect God's character as he rules, he's supposed to re- represent God's kingdom on earth. And so that's why he's called God's son. It's like, you know, I'm putting you in charge here. You're my son. You're getting put in charge. And this links back to a promise that God gave to King David in Second Samuel, chapter seven, where God said, "You know, one of your descendants, I'm going to be a father to your descendants, and they're going to be like a son to me." And this is a promise God gave to David. So here, Jesus is fulfilling this promise. Jesus is eternally the Son of God, and God is eternally His Father. And Jesus has come as the King who will truly reflect what God is like and truly represent God's kingdom on earth. And so God is putting Jesus as ruler over his people as their Messiah. And the second part of the declaration is, with you I am well pleased. And this alludes, we've talked about the servant songs in Isaiah, and this alludes to the first servant song in Isaiah 42, verse 1, where it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And the verse goes on to say, I've put my spirit upon him. And this servant in Isaiah is also called the suffering servant, um, which is described in Isaiah 53, the famous line where like he his. Uh, He was bearing our sins and he was being chastised um, on our behalf. God's plan is to use this servant to bring salvation to his people. So God is identifying, you know, Jesus is the Messiah and he's the suffering servant. He's the the king who will reign from the line of David and he's the servant of Isaiah who will die for the people's sins. And often this is pretty important because a lot of people kind of miss that part of like, the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to, be, he's going to reign. Like he's just, it's going to be glory on earth. But it's like, but he's also the suffering servant. It says, so, okay, how do those two go together? And that's God's plan about this. I've, this is my plan from the beginning. The big idea for today is this. Think like Jesus, not like the devil. And we'll see what Jesus thinks about himself and what Jesus thinks about God. And at his baptism, Jesus clearly heard what God thinks about him. And this is the foundation of what Jesus thinks about himself. I am God's beloved Son, with whom he is well pleased. So, you know, think to yourself, what do you think about yourself? What is your core foundational identity? And what's the source of it? And Jesus' source is what God says is true about him. And when we trust in Jesus, we're united with him. We're united with Christ, and which means we're one with him. That means what's true of Jesus is now true of us. We have the same status, the same standing with God that Jesus has. and So God declares over us, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you I am well pleased. I delight in you. I take pleasure in you. So in union with Christ we gain that same status, that same standing with God. The second proof that shows Jesus is fit for his mission is the genealogical proof um, in verses 23 through 28 of chapter 3. And both the baptism and this genealogy deal with who Jesus is and the Jesus' baptism affirmed from the heavenly, divine side of things, this is my son, and this is the son of God. And this ge- genealogy affirms from the earthly, human side of things that Jesus is the son of God. And so, we're not going to read through the whole thing, but there's a few significant aspects of it. So first, uh, beginning, it begins in verse 23. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph son of Heli, and then it goes on, the son of the son of him, and keeps tracing it back. And notice that people only thought Jesus was the son of Joseph. While Joseph was Jesus' earthly father, he was not his biological father. And this ties back to the birth narratives where again the spirit was involved when Mary asks, okay, I'm a virgin, you're saying I'm going to be pregnant, how is that going to work? And the angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child will be born and will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then now look at the end of verse 31 in the genealogy. Jesus' Jesus' family lineage uh, traces back to David. So it says, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. And so the son of David there, Jesus' earthly genealogy traces back to uh, David's line, whom God said, "Promise one of your descendants will be called God's son and he will have an everlasting kingdom. And in the Bible 7 is a number of perfection. God created the earth in uh, six days, and then the seventh day he rested. And in total there are 77 son-ofs in this genealogy. And they just keep piling on top of each other. So, you know, seven is the number of perfection. There's 77 two sevens or eleven sevens in there. And the, the son-ofs just keep piling on top of each other. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And the whole thing builds this crescendo when it finally at the end says this, in the very last verse, it says the son of Adam the Son of God. God created Adam from the dust and was supposed to rule over creation as God's representative in the way and in this way he is God's son. And then Luke traces Jesus' family line back to David, whose offspring will be called the Son of God, and then back to Adam, whom he calls the Son of God. In whom, humanly speaking, this genealogy affirms that Jesus is the Son of God, but it also speaks to his divinity because he was the Son, as was supposed of Joseph. It's like, oh, where did Jesus come from? Jesus uh, was born of the Holy Spirit, the of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is qualified for his mission because of who he is. He is the Son of God. And the final proof is the character proof, and we'll look at this the longest uh, in verses, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And the first two show that Jesus is the Son of God by who he is, and this proof is going to show that he's the Son of God by what he does. And here he is tested be shown he is an obedient faithful son, he doesn't go astray and so verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 set up the test it says this, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry, so Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan River he leaves the Jordan area, and goes in the wilderness is led by the spirit there so why, why, Jesus, why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? And there are many parts of this that echo the story of Israel in the Old Testament. When God first told Moses that you're going to lead my people in the Exodus, he said, he called the people of Israel, my son. You're going to let my son go is what he said to Pharaoh. After the Exodus, God was present with Israel and led them through the wilderness. He, just like he's present with Jesus by the Spirit. After Israel disobeyed God in the wilderness, the punishment was to spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jesus spends 40 uh, days in the wilderness. Jesus quotes passages from Deuteronomy that dealt with how Israel failed in the wilderness. All three path th- things he quotes to the devil are all from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6 to 8. So Jesus goes into the wilderness as God's son to succeed where Israel as God's son failed. In the wilderness, the devil tempts him, and that, and that also brings us back to the Garden of Eden. How did Adam do? as the son of God when he was tempted by the serpent, uh, also known as the devil. Adam failed as the son of God when tempted by the devil. And not only did Adam and Israel fail, but all humanity has failed to obey God. We've all fallen for the devil's temptations. And Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to confront the enemy that has defeated every other son of God and every other human. perhaps Perhaps this seems odd to you. Uh, why would God lead Jesus into temptation? Isn't that part of the Lord's Prayer? Lead us not into temptation. And God leads him into temptation here. And does he lead us into temptation? Why would God want us to face temptation? And testing is a major theme in the Bible. And, and many event, some events are said to explicitly be a test. But even if they're not, so many of the most famous stories in the Bible are tests. Tests of people loyalty, people's loyalty to God. Tests of people's trust in God tests of whether they'll obey under difficult circumstances. And passing a test means we have resisted temptation. God does not tempt, but he leads us into tests. And every test, you can think about it this way, there's two purposes at work, and they're kind of opposites of each other. One is, the devil wants to turn our hearts away from God, while God wants to turn our hearts towards him. There's these dual purposes. So the devil's in this scenario, and in any scenario we face, it's like he's wanting us to turn our hearts away from God, and then God's purpose in a test is to turn our hearts towards God, for himself. The devil wants to make us less like Jesus, while God wants to make us more like Jesus. God tests, but Satan tempts. And the deciding factor for us is how we respond. Do we give in to the temptation, or do we resist it? When when you test something, you're, you're seeing what it's made of, you're seeing if it, if it holds up. Something or something, someone or something needs to be put under pressure and under stressful circumstances to see, will this thing really work? When, you, know, a, you need to see it in action. It's like you wouldn't want to, you know, somebody just be like, I've made this sweet car, I drew it up, built it, and then, you know, why don't you take a four hour trip with it? And it's like, well, I'd love to test it a little bit first. You know, we test things to see if they're made of, if they're going to hold up. And that's what God's tests do to us. And the Holy Spirit led Jesus to the front lines of spiritual battle to go through a test that would qualify him for his mission as a son of God. And the son of God came to fulfill God's purposes, to seek and to save the lost and give his life on the cross. But he must resist temptation of the devil and not give in where God's other sons have given in. And so first, the devil takes advantage of of Jesus' hunger from fasting 40 days. He says in verse 3, If you are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. And the devil isn't trying to get Jesus to prove he's really the Son of God, but wants him to use his position as the Son of God to his own advantage. And the temptation behind the devil's words are made clear by Jesus' response. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus sees in this temptation, of, in this, what the devil's saying, a temptation to rely on someone or something other than God. The devil tempts Jesus with a shortcut that doesn't require relying on God. It only requires relying on himself. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8.3. And in that context, Jesus is telling the people uh, how God had let them hunger in the wilderness and he fed them with manna, this kind of like you know, odd bread stuff that kind of formed on the ground. He fed them with that in the wilderness. And so why is Moses reminding him of that? Deuteronomy 8.3 says, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, they needed to trust God. Would he bring them food for each new day? And some of them, right when they first saw it, like, were hungry. Well, oh, sweet. And they tried to store up extra so they have it the next day and days after it. But it only lasts one day. At night, it are all rot. And so each day, they have to trust, will God provide again tomorrow? Will he do what he said? He said he's going to provide food for us, and so we have to trust him and not try to hoard it. He was, they are told, just take a, the amount you need for one day, and you have to trust me that it's going to come again tomorrow. The question for Jesus is, will he trust God to take care of him, to be his source of life? You know, think about the passage, we can't go into it, but where Jesus teaches on the birds of the air and the flowers of the field and about worries, saying, you know, today has enough worries of its own, you've got to trust God for tomorrow. And so our big idea for today is this, think like Jesus, not like the devil. And so how does the devil think in comparison to Jesus? The devil wants Jesus to think, I deserve this bread and I can, I can get it without God. I can I can do it myself. I can supply bread for myself. I don't have to rely on him. And this is a temptation to self-reliance. The devil wants Jesus to see himself as the source of food and life and as the one who provides for himself. And we fall into this temptation whenever we take shortcuts to get what we want instead of relying on God. And we also fall into this temptation when we think that we or someone else are the source of the good things in our life. You know, do... Do we count what we have in our life as a blessing from God, or do we think, you know, I got this. I brought this into my life. I got this job. I got this house. I got this spouse. I got these kids. I got this car. You know, all the things in my life, I got them. Like I've done it. Or are we saying, you know, God, you just give me so many blessings. Like, who gets credit? And this is also a temptation to exploit any sort of position or rights we have or think we have to get what we want. Maybe we think, you know, I'm a child of God or, you know, I have this position at work. You're like, no, you, you, you can't talk to me like that. I deserve to be treated better than that. Anytime we try to say, because of my position or any rights we think we have or our status, like, no, I deserve to be treated better than this. We may even think that we deserve better than what God has yeah. given us. We complain that we deserve more. We deserve better. And this is all thinking like the devil. And how does Jesus think? What does he think about God? He sees God as the source and provider. He sees God as trustworthy. He believes God keeps his word and his promises. He believes God gives him what he needs. In the second temptation, the devil showed Jesus all the kingdom of the world and offered him, you can have all this authority and all this glory. But the condition was this. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is another shortcut to that my, uh, I I don't know. okay. Maybe the battery died. I will to get myself to talk loud, Joe. This is all for you and Emma. You're, you guys had battery. You guys kind of even back there. So, uh, but the condition was this: if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. This is another shortcut. De- Jesus' destiny is to have all authority in heaven and earth, to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But the path ahead for Jesus to get there was the cross. And the devil offers them a crossless kingship and a crossless kingdom. No suffering, no death, just skip to the glory and authority. And this is all too similar to the temptation that uh, the devil gives to Adam and Eve. The devil put a vision of greatness and glory in front of them. You can be like God if you just disobey God. You can have knowledge of good and evil, just do this. And the pattern of the Bible is suffering, then glory, then glory. But the devil is offering an alternative plan that skips straight to glory. Will Jesus worship God alone? Will he give God exclusive loyalty? Or will he serve himself by bowing to the devil? And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.13, which goes to the heart of the greatest commandment, to love God with all we are and all we have. He says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And Jesus faces the same temptation when... He's telling the disciples, you know, I'm going to suffer and die. And then Peter takes him aside. No, you're not going to suffer and die. And then he says, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is set on the things of man, not on the things of God. And he sees this temptation. You can have the glory without the cross, without the suffering. Our big idea for today is this. Think like Jesus, not like the devil. How does the devil want Jesus to think? He wants them to think, you know, I don't want difficulties, challenges, suffering or hardship in life. Just give me the good stuff. Let's skip straight to the glory. Oh, let's turn that off because that's distracting. Am I talking loud enough back there, Joe? Good. Alright. All right. Just you know, just give me the good stuff, let's skip straight to the glory. And this way of thinking wants to take shortcuts. It wants to go to the finish line without running the race. The first temptation was about self reliance, and this one is about self serving. And we fall into temptation when we want our will done more than God's will. When we want things to be easier and less hard or challenging, it shows that we aren't submitted to God's purposes but our own. It's like, God, I'm not submitted to what you're doing in my life. I want my life to be different. And Jesus had to submit to suffering and death in order to fulfill God's purposes. And when we just want comfort and ease, we're thinking about our kingdom rather than God's. God uses difficulty, challenges suffering, and hardship in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And the devil wants us to say, uh, he, he's saying to us, you know, there's an easier and faster way to get what you want. An uh, easier and faster way to get you want than God's way. I have a better way to get there. You know, don't follow God's plan. But the issue is you have to sell your soul to the devil to get it. You have to bow down to his authority and his way of doing things. In the third temptation, the devil decides to use scripture to his advantage. Okay, Jesus, you're relying on scripture, so and that's what you keep you know, talking back to me with. So now I'm going to rely on some scripture. He quotes from Psalm 91, which speaks about God's care for those who are faithful to him. But the devil prefaces it with the condition from the first temptation, if you're the son of God. Now, if God commands angels to care for and protect normal faithful people, how much more is he going to care for and protect you uh, because you're the son of God? And so, this third test is basically uh, fine if you think God's so reliable and you trust Him so much. Why not test that out? And He tells them, you know, jump off this building and you know, God will protect you, right? That's what He says He's going to do. So put it to the test. But Jesus answered them, "You shall not put the Lord your God to the test." And this quotes Deuteronomy six sixteen. Verse reminding Israel how they tested God by complaining that they're going to die in the wilderness with no water. And uh, God says, You're questioning whether I'm among you or not, whether I was with you or not. And the devil here attempts Jesus to prove uh, that God is with him by forcing God to protect him. But Jesus knows the punishment that the Israelites face. They put God to the test, and a bunch of times we're we're told, And Jesus tested me all these times. He said, You're not going to enter the promised land. You're going to wander in this desert. For 40 years, until the generation that put me to the test dies off, and then your kids are going to go into the promised land. And that, Jesus knows that. And our big idea for today is this. Think like Jesus, not like the devil. So how does the devil think? The devil wants us to think that if God loves us and is with us, he should prove it in the way that we decide he should prove it. You know, okay, you want to prove he's with you and that he loves you? Uh, I'm going to do this. This is how I want you to prove it, God. This is about creating a test of God's presence, care, or love, uh, and questioning it. Do you really love me? Do you really care? Are you really with me? I'm going to do something to see if you are really with me, if you really do love me, if you care. And we might do this about something in the future. God, if you love me, please do this. This is what I want you to do. God, if you're real, do this. Prove it. And we might also say to us something in the past that's already happened. God, if you loved me, this never would have happened to me. God, if you were with me, I wouldn't be going through this. God, if you cared, you would have ended my pain and suffering. We fall into this temptation. When we fall into this temptation, we define how God's presence, love, and care should show up in our lives. This is what it, should look, this is what it would look like to love me and care for me, God. This is what it would look like if you were really with me. The first two temptations focused on self, self-reliance, self-serving. This one focuses on God, seeing if he can be trusted. How does Jesus think? Jesus believes God doesn't need to be put to the test. God is trustworthy, His presence, love and care don't need to be put to the test. Jesus lets God define how He will express His love, care, and protection toward Him. Now we're told when the devil ended every temptation, He departed until an opportune time and Jesus defeated them. And it's clear that the devil uh, isn't absent from here forward, um, but he's more operating behind the scenes. And this, uh, as one author said it, um, in this moment, it's like G- it's like the devil steps up from behind the curtain for a direct confrontation. And then he goes back behind it, and he's operating through people, such as Peter, when Jesus recognizes that's a temptation. Uh, and filled with the Holy Spirit, and led by the Spirit, Jesus went into the very place where Israel failed to show he's the faithful Israel. He's the true and tested Son of God to serve as the suffering servant, Messiah. So maybe think about this. What's the wilderness in your life? What feels like a wilderness? Like, God, I just don't even know know what's going on here. It feels like I'm in a wilderness. I'm not in a peaceful, comfortable, uh, luxury hotel or something. I just feel like I'm in a wilderness struggling to survive. In Scripture, the wilderness is both a place of where you go to meet God and it's a place of testing. And it's often in the wilderness that we see ourselves and God most clearly. Some of the things we wrote up here. Um, what good things can a test do? It us. I might open up more opportunities. Like Jesus is, getting, is going to be able to serve God's mission. illuminate illuminates where we need growth. And the wilderness is something like, wow, here's this total blind spot that I was not trusting God in. Or this area of life that I was being selfish wasn't even thinking about other people. It also can show where we're good at. Like, wow, God, you've shown me that I stood up to this test in, you know, these, in these ways. It can be a chance to prove what we've learned. The encouragement is to show where more growth can happen. And so it's this uh, way that we're uh, going, we can experience, this is who I am, seeing myself clearly in this testing and this challenge, and I'm also seeing, God, I really need you a lot more than I've been relying upon you. And it's in the wilderness that we see our sinfulness and His holiness. We see how far we fall short. It's there that we grow in our gratitude for grace. Even more fully devote ourselves to God because we see how amazing He is. And it's kind of like chipping, you know, if you're like a, a work of art that's being made, like this statue, and it's like God chipping things off to mold us into His image. When God brings us into the wilderness, it's important to remember that it, it isn't because we've done something wrong or because He doesn't love us or isn't with us. Perhaps we have done Perhaps you see the pattern in your life, and it's like I'm going to bring you this wilderness time uh, to help you get out of that pattern. But why does the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? It can't be because he isn't God's son, because it would make clear his baptism that he was God's
1: son.
0: It can't be because God doesn't love him, because that was made clear at his baptism. You are my beloved son. It can't be because God isn't with him, because he was anointed with the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit when he goes into the wilderness wilderness is the place where we do spiritual battle with the devil as God's sons and daughters. It's the wilderness where God tests us, showing us areas of growth and weakness and proving that we are loyal to him. So what makes someone a beloved child of God? Uh, I want to say two things here. Uh, one is a beloved child of God is a status given by God. Beloved child of God, in quotes, is a status given by God. And Jesus passed the test perfectly on our behalf. And now united with Him, our standing and status with God doesn't change based on how well we're passing the test. It's tied to Jesus, it's based on His testimony And Jesus made a way for us to be God's sons and daughters. He made a way for us to be forgiven, to get into God's family. And now then after we trust in Jesus, we're given the Holy Spirit, the seal of God's love for us as his sons and daughters. And so when our uh, status with God and our standing with God doesn't go up and down based on how well we're doing the test, it goes, it's all from Jesus. We're now seen as his beloved children because of what Jesus has done. But there's also another reality. Beloved children are of God is a status given by God. And beloved child of God is a status proven by our actions. That's the other side of it. So it's a status given to us by God. We don't earn it. Uh, it's not based on our test grade. But then, a uh, beloved child of God is a status proven by our actions. Our status in st- standing with God uh, is based on what Jesus has done, not what we do. But that doesn't mean we don't take tests. Our standing with Him is based on His like succeeding in the test, not on ours. But that doesn't mean we don't take tests. It means our performance on the test doesn't jeopardize our relationship with God. That's what grace means. It's based on grace. A law... Would only measure how far you fall short. So you take the test, and according to law, you know, here's the answer key. This is how many of you got wrong. Um, but when we're in a relationship with grace, there's forgiveness for what we got wrong. There's also celebrating, like we said, what you're doing right, the areas you have grown, the ways you are showing and that you're loyal to me. Where we fall short is measured by God comes alongside us to help us grow. It's not you need to correct all these things before I love you. You need to correct all these things before you're my beloved child. No, God, in his family now, he helps us like a good father would do. And we should want that. We should want to be shown areas where we're falling short, areas where you have growth, areas where, man, I'm trusting in something else, and that's killing me, and I need to trust in God more. I'm, I'm not treating people right, and I, need, I want to grow in that. I want to be more like Jesus. And if we don't want that, we're either scared of God, like, oh, if he sees anything wrong with me, he's going to reject me. Or just selfish, thinking, you know, I want all I just want all the good stuff. I don't want to be growing. I don't want to get better at loving God or like people. And our whole life is a test. And Jesus will assess our life. That's very clear in scripture that at least when we stand before Jesus, he will evaluate and assess our life. But the difference is if you trusted in Jesus, he won't be assessing our life for uh, condemnation. Um, it will be for commendation. That we're not standing before him and he's assessing our life and saying, here's all the ways you fall short, you're condemned. There's no, no, no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, but Jesus is assessing us for a commendation where he can say, good job, You know, look at these, these things you do. Well done, good and faithful servant. So uh, tests verify our status that we are living as sons and daughters of God. A big idea today think like Jesus, not like the devil. So what does Jesus think about himself? I'm the beloved son of God. God is well pleased with me. My purpose is to trust God and worship and serve him alone. And we can take that on, that purpose and on ourselves and that definition on ourselves. I'm a beloved son of God. God is well pleased with me. My purpose is to trust God and worship and serve him alone. Or you can insert daughter there. What does Jesus think about God? This is kind of a summary of the things he quotes and says. God is my Father. He is with me. He leads me. God is completely reliable and trustworthy. What He says, He will do. God is totally worthy of all my worship and service. God's ways are the best way, and I will do His will no matter what, even if it hurts. God's presence, love, and care for me are real no matter what the situation looks like or how I may feel. I do not need to test Him. He's reliable to come through in His way and in His time. My suffering or hardship does not mean God doesn't love me, care about me, or isn't present with me. God is with me even when things are hard. When we're tested, we're proving to be God's children and not children of the devil. As children of God, we want to think like Jesus, the Son of God, and following his example. And often I use the four G's, um, and a lot of you know these, but often I'll use these and kind of go through, through them. So the first one will be like, you know, what am I trying to control? And then it's like, okay, I, that's a test. Am I going to trust God his control, or am I going to try to control this? If I'm going to continue trying to control it, that means I'm giving in to the temptation. And Who am I afraid of? I'll ask myself. You know, this is the, These are the people I'm afraid of. And I'll just go through them and think, you know, what you think of me, God, is more than them. I need to care about your will more than their will. You know, where am I looking for satisfaction? Are there things I'm looking to be comforted by, relieved by, find rest in, that are not from you? Am I looking to you ultimately? And lastly, how am I trying to prove myself? Is there anybody I'm trying to prove myself to? Is there anything that I'm feeling scared? I just need to, I'm trying to show people, like, you know what? You can respect me. You can trust me. You're like, I'm really good at this. I'll just go through those as a way to identify temptations. And notice the temptations that the devil puts forward before Jesus aren't extravagant sins. He doesn't say, hey, that person wronged you. You should murder them it's not extravagant sins he's putting before him he's tempting him to steal something or go and sleep with someone that he shouldn't it's all very subtle and that's how it started in the garden of Eden too he didn't say to Eve hey you should completely disobey God and eat from that tree he said not to eat from uh, he started the discussion with her got her to question God he never even told her to eat from the tree You go to read Genesis 3 he never says to eat from the tree he just starts talking about it and questioning God and he just got her to doubt God and desire something that she wasn't supposed to desire. And these temptations that the devil puts before Jesus aren't clearly bad. He needs food, right? He's going to be king anyway, right? If God cares for him, well, it shouldn't be a big deal for God to prove that, right? But where do all these lead? If you decide in your heart and mind that you deserve things God hasn't given you, try to find them elsewhere, where does that kind of lead you? If you decide that it's okay to worship and serve someone or something other than God, where will that lead? If you decide God isn't trustworthy, and needs to be tested, where does that lead? And each of these starts us down a pathway that leads to death. And so in your life, you know, see the, the subtle temptations that are given to you by Satan, which aren't just, you know, go do this crazy, horrible thing. It's just usually a little subtle thing. And we need to see that as this is a moment where I'm being tempted, but also going be a test where I prove you know, I'm a faithful and obedient child of God. Uh, and Jesus made that possible for me to be in that relationship. Let's pray. Father, thank you that Jesus has perfectly passed the test on our behalf. He lived a sinless life, which means we don't have to in order to be right with you. Lord, would you let that gospel truth sink into us? And would you let it be what motivates us and pushes us forward to uh, be obedient to you and faithful to you, even in times when we feel tempted and things are difficult. In name we pray. Amen.